Hello listeners, this is a short announcement. On the 28th of November, David and I will have our first live podcast, our first live show in Brighton. We're opening the doors at 6.30. We have all the details in the show notes. So join us on the 28th of November from 6.30 in Brighton for our first ever Men Up, Men Down live show. Welcome to the Man Up, Man Down podcast, presented by Volker Baluda and David Pawsey. We discuss the pressures and challenges faced by men approaching middle age that we're often too embarrassed to speak about with our friends. You can find us online at www.manupdown.com. Enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. So welcome to another episode of Men Up, Men Down. Um, so today we meet and, and chat with Mark Conway, the incredibly inspirational speaker and burn survivor from Brighton. Despite life-altering injuries from a devastating fire, Mark's resilience and determination have turned him into a beacon of hope worldwide. He shares his story and insights as a powerful speaker, promoting mental health, wellness, and chasing dreams despite obstacles. Mark is also an accomplished entrepreneur and creative professional, bringing his unique talents to various industries. Discover how his passion and expertise can help you achieve your goals. So that was very much scripted, as you probably would have noticed, but it's a great summary. Um, Mark and I spoke oh, a few weeks ago now, um, before, if I say before the summer, time of recording is just after the summer. It's literally the 1st of September today. So Mark, first of all, welcome to the podcast and, and thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. And um, yeah. yeah, nice, uh, nice uh, description of me there. I was like, is that really me? So it's yeah. like, yeah, so it's nice hearing it back. So thank you for uh, yeah, describing me so articulately. Yeah, I, I, th I think it sounds great. So uh, I don't take any credit for it. <laughs> I mean, give, give, give us your backstory a little bit. You, you obviously, you know, you had an accident as, as a child, you know, you survived burns. And then, you know, that if I kind of shaped your your, your your life and your story so far. And, and you know, obviously we spoke before, you know, very fascinating story, very inspiring story. So, um, you know, let's, let's, let's jump in. Yep, sure. No problem. I've, uh, you know, I had a very, very typ typical childhood, you know, normal, very normal family life, you know, nothing to, you know, life in the suburbs of London, nothing really to, to write home about, but um, everything changed on the 31st of July, 1992, when I suffered serious burn injuries while on, on holiday in Ireland at uh, my uncle's house. You know, pretty cliche kids stupidly playing with matches uh, in an area where there was some petrol around and a, and a garage caught fire. I got trapped in it. I was never never on fire, but the, the heat around me made me pass out. Um, I had a crazy near-death experience and managed to escape the garage and... Then there were no emergency services or, or anything like that in operation that night for some reason. There was a really big electrical storm. So I think they might have been called elsewhere. So my uncle had to make a crazy 12-mile trip in the rain and, and the lightning and the storms to a, to a local hospital. Took some very, very swished actions that basically I, I only found out this year gave me about a 3 or 4% chance of surviving from zero Jeez. Got to got got to the local hospital. They took two or three hours to to stabilise me, uh, and then they had to get me to to Dublin as quick as possible because there was a newly opened burns unit, unit there, and it was the only place in in Ireland that had the facilities to be able to to treat me. So that was a four hour ambulance journey across country. My mum was in the front of the ambulance. I was in the back. Were you uh, sorry? Were you conscious during no, all this no, time? No, no, no. I you know when I got into the to the hospital in Castle Bar, you know, the, 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 you know, the journey in the car on the back of my uncle's car was like pretty horrendous as you can imagine. And yeah, I found out about a new kind of pain at that point that, that I, you know, you can't even explain to anyone. It's, it's beyond, it's beyond anyone's kind of imagination. So I was just screaming at them to, to knock me out, which they did. Yeah. Got to Dublin after flatlining twice on the way. So they had to resuscitate me twice in the, in the back of the ambulance got there and was into an induced coma came out of that coma and then someone in the hospital um administered penicillin to me despite the fact that it was written all over my files and reading that i was severely allergic to penicillin uh that nearly killed me so i had to go 
had to go back into a back into a, an induced coma for for another period of time. Came out of that, and then it was yeah two really hard months in in Dublin. Three operations. I think I had like you know usual skin grafts, and they made some mistakes on my hand, which um, I'm still living with the effects to this day. They were very inexperienced burns units, so I'm not. You know, I don't want to, to to rag on them too much, but you know, some some mistakes were made. Uh, but it was it was a really really tough time. You know, all my all my organs were trying to give up one by one because uh, I think thirty eight percent of my body initially was was burned. So the biggest organ in my body was just was just open, and that put a lot of pressure on my heart, my kidneys, my liver. But I managed to you know one by one stabilize them all. Um, I had really, really deep burns on my forehead, so they were extremely worried about my eyesight. So it was a long time, or well, it felt like a long time before they finally took the bandages off off my eyes. So I spent a period of time conscious, but blind effectively. And it's amazing what that does to, to your other to your other senses and how my hearing and I just got to learn people by their footsteps. And but it was great news when. Uh, yeah, with the bandages just taken off and my eyesight was miraculously, I don't know how, in perfect condition, not, no problems whatsoever. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. I was having like two hour dressing changes every day that were like torture. You know, I was getting lowered into this big vat, this big bath that they piled, you know, kilograms of salt into. And it was only when I got to, to, to London and uh, the Roehampton Burns unit that, I realized that daily um, dressing change practice was way out of date and you don't need to do that anymore. So all of it was was unnecessary. And, you know, my mum said to me that you would you would come back from the into your hospital room and immediately be anxious about what was going to happen 22 hours later. But having to have that extreme level of anxiety and that pain, it's it's incredible what it does to your psyche and it sort of sets a new precedent of of what you're capable of overcoming and I couldn't live with that level of anxiety so actually going through that is like I have to find another way around this so I really don't get very anxious about much stuff this day and I really look back to to those days and those moments and me forcing myself to find another way to get around that obstacle with what gave me this you know this character trait that is now you know one of my superpowers to this day so yes it was horrific going through at the time but it, it gave me the platform to create you know one one part of growth that you know is is is, is my being today um anyway finally got to the point where i was able to i was well enough to well i mean just about well enough to be able to get on a flight back to to, um, to england so uh did that i still had to do a commercial flight but I, you know, I got VIP treatment. You know, I got the ambulance all the way up to the to the bottom of the the the, the plane stairs. Got back to to London into a world class burns unit with unbelievable professionals. But the reality was laid out very starkly for us. There was a a genius, slightly mad consultant uh, called Doctor uh, Mr John Clark, um, pioneer in his field, but old school, direct, very brutal. We actually clashed a lot but got on extremely well our personalities matched matched really well but he laid it out like very simply to my mum he's in a right old state we've got we've got a lot of work to do if he's going to have any quality of life so I think that was um early October maybe by then and by the end of the year I'd had 20 operations it was a lot you know so sorry like in, yeah. in a five month period yeah, yeah in a five month period I had yeah 20 20 operations so from october to the end of the year i think i had 17 operations the first week there i remember having an operation on a monday wednesday friday um, some of them were just dressing changes but because they were so extreme they didn't want to put me through what i went through in dublin so they just put me under general anesthetic but other ones were more skin grafts there was bits of skin moving around because i couldn't close my eyes so to be able to sleep i used to have to roll my eyes back in in, in my head, um, again, with my mouth, they just, they had to just, you know, take chunks of skin from under my arm, just do all this. For 1992, it was um, extremely advanced surgery and you had no choice but to just to, to crack on and get on with it. But I know I was surrounded by, in, I was incredible, incredible stuff, like ridiculously. It's, you know, 
I've got so much love for the NHS to see how under-resourced it is these days compared to to what we got and the support we got in the early 90s is, is really sad for me to see. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was the kind of the main crux of that. So what, what was your sort of state of mind then? I mean, was it almost like an out-of-body experience where you just kind of let it happen? Or, you know, were you kind of, why me, you know, is there any point in living? I mean, you know, I'm I'm sort yeah. of yeah. trying to think how I'd feel in that situation. And, well, as you've said, you know, it's difficult to comprehend the pain, you know, physical, emotional, psychologically. Um, I, I think, yeah, I, th- I think um, for anyone, right? I think for anyone to imagine to go through that, I think it's... Yeah, it's, I think definitely all, all those, all those things. It's, it's, it's funny because I've, you know, as I embark on this um, kind of inspirational career, I'm also writing a book in the background. So in the last few months, I've I've written about 40,000 words just going through the entire thing. And and I, I kind of look back now and it, there, there was a lot of stuff that I've forgotten. And I think that's the, you know, that, that writing is kind of really like churned up again. And I'm in an incredibly stable mental state to, to, to deal with that. And I think we'll get to that a bit more in, later in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, all those moments exist. You do think, you know, is this worth it? Should I just check out? Um, there are moments where you do question why, but you have to you have to allow those those states of mind to flow through you. If you try and bury them, um, it, it's no good. You have to uh, you have to to live with them. But I think I was extremely lucky in terms of the um, what I inherited from from my parents. Mm. You know, there's a, a, a funny, a funny story. I say that my mum said to me uh, um, at a much later date, rather than you know, within a few months mm. after this accident, that you know, son, and I've got you know, I'm one of um, four children that my mum have got. I've got three siblings, and she was like, son, if if I had to choose one of my children to have gone through this, I, I would have chosen you. And then we laughed about it. So that's not a dark thing. And mm. I think I was very lucky that you know, I was a, a gritty kid. I was competitive. I was stubborn. Uh, but I also had this big personality and this um, big sense of humor and this this dry wit. Mm. So I think the combination of those things meant that I look back now and maybe I am looking back through roasting into glasses, but there were lots of incredibly incredible moments. There was lots of laughter. You know, I was extraordinarily lucky to have a uh, a really strong, secure family unit. My parents are Irish Catholic, so I, you know, I was brought up in the church, and even though I don't practice these days, and I'm I'm very spiritual still, having having that church community and having that support, you know, uh, behind, so behind and the support from my family as well, because it's it's really important to understand that the people who suffer trauma very very rarely suffer it in isolation. Mm. You know, it was unbelievably traumatic for all those around me to experience what happened that night, and then. Mm. And then to see me and then see my recovery and see the ups and downs and seeing a 14-year-old child have to, day in, day out, have him to go through operations, you know, tons of physiotherapy, rehab, and then and then trying to trying to continue my life as well. You know, I mm. it was assumed that I would have to drop back a year. And and I was just like, no, 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 no. That is not gonna happen. Yeah. For me, that would have mentally destroyed me, I think. If I'd had, you know, when you're when you're at school, the the year below you seem really, really yeah. young. And yeah. the year above you seem really, really old. And if I had had to drop back into that school year and see all my friends, because I was just starting my GCSE years, and um, and it was just almost automatically assumed. And I'd be like, and I was just not having any of it. I point bank refused. And I think that's where my stubbornness, you know, is an attribute that in this context, you know, became like a superpower for me and I refused to do it. And some of the decisions I, I mentioned before in terms of operations in Dublin had really messed up my right hand. It was more damaged than, than my left hand, but I wrote right-handed. So I had to learn to write with my left hand mm. and having that target of trying to stay in my school year and take my GCSEs with, with my peers was a huge motivator for me. And just, it gave me that target that I needed and mm. and it and that fed into everything else that I was doing so even when you had these days and bad days and suddenly you're told you're having another operation and you've got to do this and 
I, ha- I always kept that target in my mind and that was like so empowering for me and got me through those tough times. So, um, I mean, what what was your sort of, well, friends reaction slash, I mean, were they able to come and see you when you were in Roehampton or did you not want to see them? No, I, I, um, I very, very quickly decided early on that I was going to have a head up approach and yeah. And I sort of practice in the hospital, really. And, and my mum noticed it as well. She, you know, I kept eye contact with people and I looked up and I I very quickly accepted that it was a new version of me. Mm. Yeah, main, mainly it was just um, family and some close friends that came and saw me in the hospital. I had loads of people in, in Dublin because I've got so many family in Dublin. It felt yeah. like every day that the room was full of people. So I got used to that. Yeah, and then when I was back in London and would go home for weekends, immediately I, you know, said, "I'd oh, be good to see Brendan." You know, one of my best friends who lived two roads away, but I don't think he was prepared for the sight of me at, at that point. Mm. And he came around, and I saw the look in his eyes straight away. Mm. And I heard that he then went home and just like bawled his eyes out because he'd never realised how bad it was. But no, very very early on, it was like, "No, I'm gonna." I'm not going to shy away from anything. I'm not shutting myself away. This is, this is me. People are going to have to get used to it. And making that decision very early on, you set that precedent. And, you know, I was very lucky that I had this inner confidence within me as a, as a child. And I just tapped into all those things. I think a lot, a lot of the, the the character attributes I had beforehand probably made me a little bit annoying at times. You know, I probably had more, more than I needed, you know, competitive, stubborn, yeah. this and that, but I think I was also funny and kind as well. But when you're young, they're, they're all out and they bubble over. And but, yeah. but, you know, thank God I had them because I, I I really needed all those all those um, character traits. And they just, yeah, as I said before, became, became my superpowers. So two questions. One, did you get much sort of, I mean, obviously you talked about how great the NHS was and, you know, talked about the fact that you had a lot of personal attributes that helped you get through it. But I mean, in, in terms of the mental health aspect, was there, you know, and especially sort of, you know, if we're talking 1992, it wasn't sort of such a common topic. I mean, I don't even know if sort of PTSD was, was, would have been recognized then. The other question was, are you still in touch with a lot of the people or any of the people that treated you? Yeah, that's the really, really good questions. I'm really glad you've gone to that because I'm, becoming very very much fascinated by PTSD and the kind of modern westernized medicine approach to Mm. it and PTSD really had its growth spurt in the 90s and I had people basically the conversations I'd be hearing was that there wasn't a very kind of a bright future painted for me and I would just didn't want to accept that I was like, no, 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 there, there can't be. And when I had down days, my mum had to go out and she was like, wasn't there more kind of mental health support? So it wasn't as much around, but then they did find people to come in. But I was weirdly knew my, knew my own mind like very quickly. And they had a couple of therapists come in and tried to talk to me. And there's a, a very funny story of one of them that I remember sitting down with her. She came into my, into my ward and she was just trying to put stuff inside my head that wasn't there. Mm. And I wasn't going to allow her to do that. It's like, well, you must be feeling this and this is going to happen to you. And this, and I'm like, nope, <laughs> no, I don't see it that way. No, 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 please don't try and put that in my head. It's like, that's not who I am. Um, and then 15 minutes into an hour session, her walking out of the ward and my mum stood there with the other nurses and she's just shaking her head and she's like, that kid could give me therapy and I'm just joking. <laughs> he's going to be fine. And then walked out and they all, they all started laughing. So weirdly, whenever they try to come and tell me these things, they, I chased them out of the room mm. and the best therapist I ever had was my physiotherapist. She was <laughs> extraordinary. Claire Clark, I've lost touch with her, but through this journey now of like looking back and writing my book, I'm, going to go and find her again because <clears throat> she she's she saved my life in one way not only was she a, a world-class hand physiotherapist because I had to spend you know four days a week with her for yeah. 18 months or whatever it was we became so close 
and I had what I needed from you know from her from my family from my friends and that was all the therapy I needed but I but I also do think I'm you know looking back again I've accepted that I am a bit of an outlier you know and my mom has also been doing some some writing recently I want her to contribute towards the stuff that I'm going to put out because I said before you know people don't suffer trauma in isolation and we both read this amazing book recently by Henry Fraser he's a famous mouth artist now and he's a mouth artist because he's quadriplegic because he broke his neck when he was 17 reading his story and both my mum and especially her she was like gosh I wonder what his mum was thinking at that point mm. and so that's why it's really important for me to uh, to get that uh, to get those points of view across as well uh, but my mum then was doing some of her own research around burns victims and and there's stats out there that they say that 60-70% of uh, people who suffer severe burns have had extreme forms of PTSD at certain points, whether soon after their accident, later in life. And I just never have. It's just mm. never, it's just never. If anything, you know, I've just grown from this experience. So I've had post-traumatic growth and I've never woke up with nightmares. You know, I can close my eyes and, you know, I can see the final moments of this burning garage before I pass out and and I can just look at it objectively and it just doesn't stir anything up, which is why I think I'm now 30 over 30 years on feel like I need to I need to use this. I need to use who mm. I am as a platform that I can I can share hope that I can that that, that that just because trauma happens to you, it doesn't have to turn into PTSD. And I think our approach to to trauma and to mental health needs to become so much more subjective, so much more about the individual and who they are. Whereas we're very, and this, this is much broader across mental health, I really feel like that we're trying to diagnose and categorize people far too quickly based on whatever papers have been published and what people are learning from textbooks. And And I spot it so quickly in people when I know that they're, spouting from a textbook and they're not really connecting with their patients or what they're talking to and I do look back now and it's and it's weird saying this about yourself but I do find it quite extraordinary that I had that within me as a 14 year old boy I didn't understand why I was doing or whatever but I look back now with a much more objective viewpoint that I wasn't going to allow myself to be pigeonholed and I'm so anti-labels and labels for the sake of labels because I feel like that they you can they can be weaponized you know against yourself or other people can weaponize against you or they can give you excuses not to 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 build up this resilience and it's so important that we're we're empathic and we're compassionate and we look at those things but it's important that we balance that up with trying to build up some grit and resilience within people because if we have those two things in balance then I feel like we can get real growth and much quicker growth. If I say I'm I'm, I'm in awe I mean. I could, if I say, I could listen to you forever, but there's, I don't even know where to start. There's, there's so much you're saying there, which, which really resonates with me. Um, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned that when, when we spoke, but I'm, I'm doing a, you know, just getting into stage two of, of a hypnopsychotherapist course. So, so things we start talking about are trauma and um, PTSD, etc. And it is a very fascinating topic. So, I'm, so, so one natural question would be, how, how much therapy did you have? So, did, did you not have any therapy? It sounds almost like. You kind of put that all aside and, and you can just naturally cope with it which which isn't very common but yeah i didn't i didn't have any did you not wow no and they tried to do some hypnotherapy with me as well yeah. but my idea of hypnotherapy in 1992 was paul mckenna you know still on <laughs> yeah, stage yeah. so i thought when a hypnotherapist but really what they were trying to do was help me meditate and be really mindful but that wasn't really talked about then and I was just like, is this guy going to get me walking up and down the corridor? And I don't even remember it afterwards. So <laughs> so I don't think, you know, you're going in and you're going down in a lift and we were starting at ground floor and then you're going yeah. to minus one. I'm like, what is going on here? So yeah. no, I didn't, I didn't have any therapy at all. But you, you said, And that is unusual. Yeah, because you said you had physiotherapy and I said, yeah, of course that helped. And from, from what you're saying, you 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 must have a really close relationship with your with your mum, right? Your mum must have helped you a lot. Yeah. So how 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 is she coping with it? Yeah, she's. I think writing recently has churned up some emotions, and I think there's been yeah. some tears, and she's found it a bit hard, but she's also found it very very therapeutic. Yes, you're right. She immediately became my primary carer, so she gave yeah. up work, and 
for the next five years was my primary carer and we became a team. Yeah, she's like the most extraordinary woman. She's so giving and so compassionate, but very, very strong as well. And, yeah. you know, I think I get my dry sense of humor and my morals from my dad and from my mom. I get this like sense of caring, but this, this inner strength. And she, she, you know, she went to war for me. And it's, I think the the kind of leadership qualities I've got were, were, were born out of those, those early periods where I felt like I needed to take some of the burden off her. And I really took control of, of, of my own recovery and what was happening. And I hated it when people would talk about me when I was in the room, like I was a child and not to be, yeah. to be listened to. And I was like, don't, don't do that. And my mum backed me up on that. She's like, well, ask Mark kind of thing. And it's really important. We made sure that there was, um, there was laughter and humor all the way through, yeah. even if it was dark, even in the darkest moments, there was something, there was always something to laugh about. And it, it makes you when so much has been taken away from you, it makes you notice those, those little moments, those small things every single day that, that bring, that bring a smile to your face. And, and that's never left me either. Yeah. So I'm super, super grateful for that. So even I'm grateful for the, you know, the, the really hard times because of the, the character building blocks, it still allowed me to create who I am today, still developing because obviously it's horrific going through puberty and, having yeah. to deal with all this as well in an emotional state. But because I was still growing as a person, I still had the capacity to, to add and to grow these character traits like beyond what they ever would have been without it. So if it happened when I was 23 or 24, I probably wouldn't have had that same level of resilience and ability to, to grow as a person. Yeah. But yes, and she's, but she's found it very therapeutic, I think, recently going through it. And as a, a lot of my other family members, you know, I did a, a three-week trip to Ireland and I wanted to respectfully tell you know my uncle whose house it was at you know my cousins who were there on the night um, my auntie who was there with me every day in hospital in Dublin all these different key stakeholders in in my recovery in those early stages that I'm gonna now talk about it I'm gonna get it out there but I want to make sure that you're okay first you know I want to respectfully say that I'm going to be talking about these things but yeah I'm not going to do it until I know that you're all on board with it I'm not asking for permission I just and it, and it turned into, you know, a series of incredibly deep conversations and, and emotional, but more, more on their part, because I'd, I'd gotten to that place and it took me 30 years, but I'd felt like that, you know, after the accident, yeah. I needed to, to e- even up the score with the universe. So rather than focusing on what had been taken away from me, I was like, how can I go and get mine back? You know, how can I even up the score? How can I, how can I create a life that, that's full of adventure and, you know, forge my own path, excuse the pun, to to just go out there and just create yeah. my own rules. It's like I had nothing to lose now. And yeah. no one was, you know, because I've become this such strong person, no one was going to tell me otherwise. So how did your life develop since? Yeah. So a couple of a couple of key, key moments before yeah. we kind of get onto it was um, I managed to make it back to school. Yeah. Somehow in January. So six months after by accident was the first time I went to back to school. By that time, I was wearing a clear perspex mask which i had to wear for 24 hours a day for two years so that was pretty tough and then going back into uh, an all-male very masculine sports um heavy school was the hardest the hardest day of my life you know the obviously there was the day of the accident in terms of you know mentally going back in as that that was that was tough but but i got over it and then I managed to somehow get five GCSEs. So 18 months later, I managed to sit GCSEs. By that point, you know, I'd got my writing good enough with my left hand that I was able to write write my GCSEs with my left hand. Um, I took six past five, which meant I could go into A-levels. And that was like massive, massive milestone for me. Massive milestone for my mum. I think it's the proudest she's ever, ever been of me when I, when I got through that. But then I shocked everybody and I came home to my parents and I said, I want to leave my school. I don't want to go to sixth form college. I felt like that because then by that stage, I'd my next target was I need to get my independence back. And for me, independence was going to university and, and moving away from home and being able to live on my own, which, uh, you know, that for a long time was up in the air. Was, you yeah. know, with the damage to my hands, was I ever going to be able to be without a carer? 
So that gave me a new target, you know, getting back to school, staying my school year was the first one. Then I just pushed it forward and it was getting to university. But I felt like that I was wrapped up in cotton wool. You know, I was untouchable in school. You know, anyone who came near me or did anything would have got expelled. And it wasn't a natural environment. And it's what I needed to start with. But then I was like, the jump to university is going to be too big. You know, I need to, I'm, I'm not as mature as other people around me because I'm living in this bubble. Mm, yeah. So I'm still wearing the the plastic mask and and they were like, You can't leave you can't leave school. You've you've got everything set up for you. They look at all they've done for you. And and I said, It's not about them, it's about me. And and eventually like, All right then, okay, we'll support you. So I went to a local mixed sixth form college and just rocked up there, still wearing my plastic mask. And my two two best mates left school with me and came to the college with me. So I had this incredible friendship group around me as well. And then by the end of, you know, by the end of that first term in my new college, my, you know, my mask had gone. And then, and then my growth during those, I ended up having to do GCC and my A-levels over three years. You know, it did catch up with me. I was having operations every, every half term and, and holiday. And I, I took on biology and I'd missed, I'd missed too much of the curriculum in GCC. And I was like, I'm just not capable. I just don't know enough. So I dropped that and actually having that extra year took a bit of pressure off me. I needed to, to mature a bit more, but the growth in me and my confidence just came back and I made so many friends and, and it got me ready for university and, you know, I managed to get my A-levels and then go to university, the West of England in Bristol. My parents drove me down there and, and then they dropped me off. And I remember closing the door behind them, shaking their hands, giving them a hug, closing the door, standing there in the corridor. And it's only one or two times in my life that I had this all over body reaction. It was like every single hair on my body stood up and I was like, kid, you've done it. You've absolutely done it. And for me, that was massive. I just stood there. I'd never been so proud of myself. It was like, it's like I completed this, this, this in a series of games, I completed the first game and I was like, I can't believe you've actually made it to university and you, you can live on your own. And I think it's at that point that, you know, I describe now that I started running into life. So the five years bef- before me was just getting me to the, to the starting blocks. And now I was running and I was, and I was off and I was, and I was flying and um, I was thriving by that point. And, um, and I had unbelievable time at, at university. And then before my final year, I went, to Central America for for about five weeks, and that just opened up my mind. I mean, leaving a leaving a small mining town like Croydon and then going to university made me look at the way other people from different demographics and backgrounds and countries live their life. And I just wanted to keep breaking free of these stereotypes and these ways that we should live. And and I wanted to question everything about my upbringing and how I was living. And then I went travelling, and I was like, oh my word, this is this is what I need to be doing. So then that was my next goal. It was like, get a degree, do whatever you need to do to go traveling and expand your mind. And, and then traveling became a, you know, a massive love of mine through the twenties, uh, through my twenties. And it just broadened my horizons. Um, I fell in love with South, Southeast Asia more than any other, uh, other region, you know, really started to become much more broad minded in terms of my spirituality rather than the, you know, the narrow kind of strict rules that you know the catholic religion had had put upon me as i was growing up and it was just yeah i just kept growing and growing and growing as a person it was just incredible men up men down is sponsored by well-doing it's a great platform for finding a therapist or counselor they only accept verified professionals and they make it really easy to find one who is right for you you can also use their personalized matching service so your availability, budget and needs are expertly matched with just the right person. If you didn't already know, success in therapy is down to making a great match with your counsellor and the people at Welldoing really know how to make that happen. Plus, they have loads of stories, videos and interviews to support your mental health. Take a look at welldoing.org. So I'm... Um, quite mindful of the fact that you sort of said it's not about them it's about me and that feeling of closing the door like to your parents 
Mm. What what was your mum? I mean, have you spoken to your mum about that moment? Because I can imagine that that would have been mm. like very contrasting reaction yeah. for her on the other side of the door. Yeah, it's this 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 the second time. I'm just going to take you forward thirty years, and then we'll go back to that. Okay. So the, the second time I got that all over body reaction was at the beginning of uh, 2022 and I just left a company that I'd founded five years before I disappeared to Wales um, for three weeks trying to figure out you know what I was going to do and you know I had a bit of an a kind of an epiphany and realized that it was the right time to really start talking about my story and I got another all over body reaction and it was like that I'd been running into life for the previous 25 years and now I'd stopped running into life and I'd realized that I was fully healed from my trauma even though I was never really suffered that much trauma throughout it I was now ready to to stop and look back and I described it in another podcast as almost like Forrest Gump and Tom Hanks when he's running across the country mm-hmm. and he gets to a point and he stops and he turns around and I felt like I stopped and I turned around and I started to look back properly for the first time at all the incredible things that I'd achieved and all the the people that I'd gathered along the way as well. And the first people you start to think about is those closest to you. So and the, first, the person who was closest to me recovery was my mum. And I then started thinking about the fact when I had that, God, the last time I had that feeling was when I was stood in that corridor. Mm. And then I thought, gosh, I wonder what, my parents was thinking driving back. And I don't know if it's bad of me that it took me 25 years to to think about, you know, them and their reaction, but it is what it is. And and I asked my mum about that when I, when I got back from that trip. And she said, yeah, it was the single worst journey of her entire life, driving back mm. from Bristol to London. You know, her, I was, her, her majority, not a sole purpose, but I dominated, you know, her existence. And, and we were a team. And she was my primary carer. And all of a sudden, her purpose had been taken away from me. I'm off running and she's there going, what do I do now? Yeah. So did Um, she feel like that you'd split up, split up the band, you know, split up the team? Yeah, she, yeah, she did. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I mean, by that point, she, you know, she started going back to work part, part time by the time I was in college. So she, at least she had something that she then could go back and build into full time but yeah, I think she felt a, a little bit lost for a while. Mm. But um, but then she could just see how well I was doing, and then that you know gave gave her you know great hope that you know she'd you know job job well done mm. on her part and my parents' part. You know, dad working seven days a week to keep the family together. You know, d- during those those few years as well, um, my parents lost all their parents, so we lost four, you know three grandparents in a four month period. My dad got made redundant. Um, we had two older siblings already at university. Uh, my dad had to go out just minicabbing just to scrape enough money together to mm. keep their family intact. It's like there was a lot more going on than just than just me as well. And like I got so much admiration for my parents for mm. just keeping us together as a family unit. And during a recession at the time, it was just, and I was, you know, blissfully kind of unaware of all that stuff, but that had to be. I was almost like a, you know, a, like a world-class athlete that has to make it all about themselves they mm. have to have that self-centeredness because that is that was the only way that I was going to survive that was the only way that I was going to get back on track and it just had to be a, it just had to be about me because there was no capacity for anything else and um and there's fallout from that you know they've got siblings that I probably took a lot of resource away from them and you know that's probably impacted them in in mm. certain ways but there was just there was just no other way there was just no other choice and then I discovered the, the game of poker. So I was drift, drifting a bit in, in my 20s and um, discovered the game of poker, completely fell in love with it. And not from a gambling point of view, I just loved it from a psychological and a strategy and a mathematical point of view. And it was a time when poker was just starting to boom and and I wanted to find something that I could still travel and earn some money. And I started to earn some money through poker it was it was a an amazing time and I found a community within poker as well. But then everyone started getting really good around me. People around me were saying I was getting too obsessed with it. I was in a relationship at the time that she we were like trains passing in the middle of the night and she didn't really like it too much. So 
so I started to look for opportunities of using the you know any sort of powers of communication I had and that led to me writing about poker going to tournaments and covering them and then the industry exploded exploded across Europe and I was in the right place at the right time so all of a sudden from me kidding myself that this could have been a, a career path suddenly it became a very very realistic career path mm. and I spent the next 10 12 years traveling around the world writing about poker and then the the people who ran the tours like live stream commentary as broadband was coming about was becoming a real thing and they were like you know this kid's got a big mouth maybe we should stick a mic in front of him and see what happens and I became a poker commentator and won a big award for that and and it was fantastic I had the most incredible lifestyle I could continue to travel my hobby became my job and it was just pure adventure it was amazing of uh well someone I used to work with basically quit his job to become a professional poker player Jeff Kimber I don't know I oh, know Jeff all oh, right yeah yeah I know going. Jeff really well yeah ah. well there we go common common contact I've, yeah. I've I'm not really a, I've played poker but I'm not really a, a player myself but um but yeah sorry I just had to to slip that in there a little name drop did, did you make a lot of money on poker or not uh not enough Okay. which is why I went into the media side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I realized that there was, I was beginning, I was at a very interesting crossover time between the old school poker player, you know, the Stetson hats, the cigars, the the dark, you know, room at the back of a saloon and the old school kind of road gamblers. And then, then the internet happened and all of a sudden it became very much about data and statistical analysis and plugging leaks in your game and looking back and being able to analyze so these online kids who first, first of all, the old school thought that they were value for money, soon realized that within six months, they could play the same amount of hands and learn the craft that it would take 10 years from an old school live pro have to do. And I recognize these young kids coming through. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, there's these 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds earning millions online mm-hmm. and changing the game. And already by that point, me in my kind of mid to late 20s, I thought I've missed the boat here a bit. You know, my timing's a bit off. Um, But because I got in really early on the media side, it was like going from deciding that you want to write about football and then a year later going to all the Champions League games and writing about it. I went straight to the European Poker Tour, which became the dominant tour in Europe. And I was just very lucky. I was the cream that then just rose as as, as the... as the, the glass got bigger, it was the cream that rose to the top. And and I still had aspirations of playing and winning that big amount, uh, but it didn't happen. And more and more and more, my focus became just becoming like the best I could at the, the media side. And it still allowed me to be around the action and travel around the world, staying four and five star hotels. Um, there was so much money floating around the game back in the late noughties. Um, it, it was ridiculous. So it was um, it was a lot of fun. It was it was work hard and it was certainly play hard as well. Well, how long did you continue doing that for? Um, so I'm the type of character that that needs to keep moving forward. Um, mm. I can't I can't stay still. I need to keep aggressing. Plateauing for me isn't a thing. And I'd gotten to the to the very top. You know, I was work, working on the commentating on the the biggest live stream that I could in in Europe, and you know, we'd be getting up to like 40,000 concurrent like listeners, you know, 2 million unique viewers in a couple of week period. Uh, I then got nominated for a big industry award. The next year, they created a new Media Person of the Year award. I won the inaugural one of that. And I felt like I'd hit a glass ceiling. Mm. And I'd had various job op- opportunities to join these big gaming companies who ran these tours over the years. But, you know, the, 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 I've got strong morals and... You know, poker, there's still, there's gray areas within a lot of it, and mm. especially within these companies. And I didn't want to work for a big gaming company. Mm. I love doing it for the for the people, for the characters, for the psychology, not for the gamble and the dark side of the game. Um, so I always resisted those job opportunities. Uh, but then I was looking at how how it was covered, how these tours were covered in a in a video sense. And I was looking at the the live streaming and they were, originally TV companies and I felt like they were just overproducing content that people were consuming on a smaller and smaller screen. Mm. So why would you need a 50 grand camera and a 
40 grand lens and a separate sound boom guy and a sound mixer and then a separate editor. And I was like, I know this game as well as anyone. I know everybody in the game. I know the stories, you know, I've done all these things. If I just had a, a video editor, a videographer editor alongside me, I could sniff out these stories. And there was more and more of an appetite for it to be as close to real time as possible. So that was really with live streams that was possible. So the the the, the era of a late night channel for poker tournaments was was going because people could follow live blogs, they could watch live streams, but then the video content because of smartphones and tablets was not in line with it. So I saw a gap. So with the the backing of one of my other clients, Unibet, and this amazing guy who worked there called David Pomeroy, he was like, "This is a thing. I do it." So. At the very top of my game, I just um, quit my free freelance roles and set up a company, 23 Digital, which turned into 23D, and went out there and tried to fill that gap in the market and do quick turnaround video content that we could know what we were shooting, know the stories, shoot to an edit, edit it really quickly and get it out the same day and tell these really interesting stories around. And that went really well, really quickly, too quickly, I'd say. I didn't know how to run a business properly. Suddenly, everybody wanted their pound of flesh, you know, from me. Mm. Um, you know, I had different different big tours, you know, wanting me exclusive of our company. It quickly became quite political. Um, and I burned out within within five months. You know, I had about 35 or 40 like, WhatsApp groups of all these various things. And I found it quite hard to transfer my personal brand mm. onto the brand of the company and to be able to oversee things because people were so used to me being there. Uh, but it was fun. You know, I flew teams of people to to to, to Russia, to to Montreal, to Las Vegas, to, and these really big teams and created some stuff that we were really proud of. But it took its toll mentally and physically. Mm. And it made me start to not fall out of love with it, but not want to travel so much my business partner then had a one-year-old so we made a decision to to down downscale the company from five employees and we made a tough decision to to make people redundant including a business partner which was which was a third director which was really sad uh, and then rebuild up again and we started to uh, transfer our knowledge to, to other events as well so it didn't have to be poker events so we could go to different conferences and all these things and also really started getting into the food and hospitality. And we were about to specialize in that events, food, hospitality. And this little thing called coronavirus came around and the pandemic right. here. And those three industries were brought to their knees. And we lost 90% of our business in about three days. And I was also going for a half a million pound Innovate UK smart grant to do some digitalization and AR stuff with menus um to try and cut down food waste that went because they said you're never going to get it all the money's going to go to people trying to innovate our way out of you know this situation yeah. that we're in so that was incredibly stressful kind to try to keep that going but i look back now and i'm really grateful because i think like a lot of people us being forced to pause and this is probably why uh, maybe a reason why you two are doing this podcast now you start to look around at the world and see the suffering and we need to change our ways and I could see this collective trauma going on around the world and I started to slowly think that I wanted to have an impact on that and help people overcome trauma and tap into I wanted to live a more purpose-led life mm. so bit by bit then over the next couple of years it finally got to the point where it's like okay now I'm I'm not aligned now with my own company and my own video agency and by the end of um, 2021, we had a real, we, you know, we got 45 grand worth of kit robbed on a, on a shoot in London. And it was just almost the, it was almost like the final blow. You know, we just kept re getting recovering and getting good contracts. And it was really, really stressful. And then over that down period of uh, 2021, Christmas and New Year, I effectively, did Christmas with the, the, the family or whatever. And then I hibernated for a week and I wasn't in a depressed state, but I'd always, I'd always found the answers like deep within inside of myself, you know, from mm. the very beginning. And I just needed to go back into that place and really sit mm. with myself for a while. 
And I came back in January and I was like, okay, I'm done with this. So I went back to my management team because we'd grown the team again by that point to five of us. And uh, and I said, you know what? I think I need to I need to go and spread my wings. Um, I tried to rebrand 23D to be the company that would allow me to have the purpose that I wanted. But I felt like so much energy was being drained from me trying to bring all these people along on this ride with mm. me that necessarily didn't want to go along. And it wasn't leaving me enough capacity to to think of what that could be. So I said, the only way I'm going to figure out what's going to happen next in my life is just to jump. So I just jumped off the 23D train within, within in between stations almost, not knowing what mm. I was going to do. But I needed to free up that space in, in my brain to know what, what I was going to do. So as I said, I dis- earlier in the podcast, I disappeared off to Wales, had some solitude time. Uh, I put some videos up, um, which my team asked me to do. First time I'd ever done it on LinkedIn of just me walking around the woods or by a waterfall or along the coastline, just sharing my thoughts. Mm. And they just blew up. Like anything compared to you know what I tried to put out, these amazing videos that we were producing that get some traction. And suddenly it's me unedited walking through the woods sharing my thoughts and it just hit home with so many people i was like okay i think maybe i need to get back into somehow communicating with people directly trying to inspire them and then i got asked to i met these two wonderful people were and nicole who were already a few weeks and months into starting this non-profit company called thrive now Mm. Uh, which is very much um, all around positive mindset and understanding our authentic selves and leadership training with retreats and one-to-one. And I thought, brilliant, this is this is the perfect vehicle for me. So they asked me to become their third co-founder. But then over the, the next year, I, as well as working with world-class mindset coaches, which was incredible, I felt myself slipping back into some of the things that, were draining my energy running 23D. And then early this year, I went on one of my own retreats. And the retreat was so good that it made me realize that I didn't actually want to be CEO of, of the of the company that I was helping to co-found. Um, yeah, I had to have some difficult conversations with one of my co-founders. You know, once I'd, she'd really helped me understand what my core values are and helped me really understand my authentic self, and I couldn't do that and and run a company. I needed to just just to go solo. So I had her blessing. You know, there were lots of tears, but and I looked at Thrive Now was the the final piece in the jigsaw puzzle that that I needed to to go off into the world. And I bought a camper van and did a trip around France and Spain. And you know, I dialed the noise right down. And when I did that, created the space. It's like I'm finally ready to to share my story and to inspire and to help people and. Uh, to write a book and looking back at the all the things that I'd done through through my career I was adding all these strings to the bow that I needed in terms of you know writing and commentating and interviewing people and creating content I just needed then to apply all that to myself and share my story with the world you know resilience positivity mindset and get out there and be a, a motivational speaker and I was finally at that that place that I was rock solid. You know, I was going into the retreat and I'd seen other people it churn up trauma from childhood in, in their lives. And, you know, I thought to myself, if if there is any underlying PTSD within me that I've just buried down and, you know, kidded myself that I don't have it, it's going to come out in this retreat. And it didn't. I just mm-hmm. felt rock solid. And I saw the impact that I was having on other people at the retreat by sharing my story in a way and helping them understand their own story and not to fear their own story and how you can grow from your story. But I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready just to go solo. I'm ready to brand myself up. I'm ready to, to write a book, become an inspirational speaker and help as many people as I can. And, you know, all these, all these things, you know, converged at once. I think the, I think there's a guy called Mo Gadwat. I don't know if you've ever heard him. Yeah. And he said that, through his work, he's often realized that it can take it can take up to 30 years for someone to get over the biggest trauma in their life. And I remember hearing that, like listening to the podcast in a bath and going, oh my God, it's like 30 years and suddenly this has happened to me. There was the pandemic, which I think has really shifted 
you know, the, the, the world's focus towards us wanting to, to live a different way and how we need to look after the planet and ourselves. There's the, there's the shift in, in how open we are as men and that, that, you know, and our vulnerability and how much more we're sharing that even five years ago, me trying to do what I'm trying to do wouldn't have the same impact. Mm. There was my own career path that all the things that I needed and skill sets that I needed to learn to make the most of this powerful story that I've got. And then the fact that, you know, I get to 44, 45, maybe I'm getting to that, that, that midlife in a men's life, you know, we can call it midlife crisis but you know i don't like to to call it that you know for ages i was calling it maybe a midlife shift in energy or Mm. i like the way that lawrence mckay or from the happy startup school talked about it as a a midlife renaissance and i thought i'm in that period of life so i can help my exact demographic like my peers and people as the first sort of people and and i guess this is what you know why i'm on this podcast and it brings it quite nicely around to how i can really help people understand and it just felt like all these things have come together at once and I'm just ready to charge forward. Mark, um, mid- midlife transition, I call it, I think, often, because it is, you know, yeah. I, see, I had the sports car, I sold it again, but that's a different story. Um, I got the tattoos, as, as, as people know. I only started three years ago. But yeah, it, it's 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 that, that stage, I think, in our lives, plus the pandemic, I think, when we start realising what do we actually want to do and we start questioning. I have so many more questions, Mark. Um, it's such a fascinating story, but I'm also looking at the time and uh, I realize we, we, we're getting close to the hour, Mark. Sorry, I do, I do, I do ramble on a lot. No, 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 no. I mean, the thing is, I've got, you know, I've got, I've got so much to say as well. It's hard to know what to leave out. Well, I've left, so, I've left all, so much out. It's all terrible content as well. You know? <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to learn anything from this. Um, I mean, I, 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 you know, obviously we don't, have the video on when we publish but I, I don't know if you've noticed i i i there's been a couple of times where i was shedding a few tears over the last hour i mean i think you know it, it's sort of what you uh, you know well, i was touched a bit of a nerve perhaps i don't um give my mum some of the respect that she deserves um but yeah it sounds like you've got an amazing family um Anyway, Volk, jump in. Jump in now, please. No, I, I felt the same. Um, it's, yeah, it's very engaging. It's, it's, so, so listening to you, it's just, you know, it's just so inspiring. My, my suggestion would be, let's, let's, do a, let's do a part two. We, we often say that to our guests, but, you know, you're writing your book. Once, once you've written your book, you know, let's, let's do a preview of your book or something like that. And, well, it's uh, obviously going to be a chapter on Man Up, Man Down, you know, because this it. has been such a, a pivotal moment uh, in your life. There we go. Of course. <laughs> let's, let's do another session and, and, and really, die, you know, because questions I had naturally is like, you know, how, you know, how do you keep going? You know, what, what motivates, you, you know, which, which direction? I mean, you, you obviously talked about what, what you're doing next and, and it's great. I would love to dig a bit deeper as well in terms of, you know, what, what gets you up in the morning, right? I mean, you know, there, there are people in life, you know, I, I'm one of these people, you know, you, you just never give up, right? But a lot of people in your situation you know, at, at one stage would have gone like, oh, sod it, you know, just fuck it. I'm, you know, I'm done with it. And, you know, it's, it's so, so great to hear, you know, with, with, with all, if I see the hardship, you know, you, you know, the, the word that comes to my mind is survivor, right? You're, you're, you're real survivor, but it's, 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 it's not only physical, but it's mentally. And I think it's so fascinating to see that and so good to see that and so inspiring. And, and hence, I think, you're writing the book, which which obviously helps you in terms of therapeutic point of view, and, and, and the book from your mom as well. Maybe we even get your mom in as well, and you know, have, have a podcast together and just just talking about the, the experience to write this book. And you know, if I say the next chapter, you know, literally chapter in your life in terms of you know going out there and helping others to be like you or to to learn from you, because that's that's what we need in this world, right? I mean, you mentioned it. We we need more people that stand up and, and move forward and, and don't give up and you know, yeah. that's that's what we're trying to do with men up, men down. I mean, you know, a lot, of course, is middle-aged men. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we only started season two and we, we, we had, you know, lots of charities that, that help other dads and, and men to get through life. And and I think your story is, is you know, as you say, it's, it's bang on, right? You, you're midlife, you, or you're just hitting midlife. You, 
I mean, I'm only a year older, but uh, <laughs> it's like it's it's you know it's 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 just at this stage. I think where you know I think you 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 you're great great example for 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 other people who who get to that stage and go like shit. You know, I I need to clear up what what my life was the last thirty years, you know, forty years, and and, and all the shit I've gone gone through. But I'm going to look forward, and I want to make you know the second part of our life. You know, there's the a part that really counts. You know, you you mentioned a couple of things. I think balancing the universe. You know, I I love that, and 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 I you know I think a lot of people go through that. And so I think it's it's spot on. Um, when 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 you plan to publish the book? I think it's probably going to be next year. Yeah, I think that I'm I'm really bad at adding too many things and overcomplicating, you know, yeah. just for the sake of it. Uh, so what I'd like to do is now that I've got so much of it just down on paper, I've got this resource to tap into. So I think my focus for the next six, seven, eight months is going to be to to hit the speaking circuit and to do that. And yeah. it's almost like a comedian trying to put a show together to go out and test the show in little places. So the speaking will allow me to see what hit home, what hits yeah. home. So not only to create better um, speaking, but know what will work really well in the book. So I think I want to almost like test the book within my speeches, and then that will help me form how the book should should be constructed. Because I yeah. think it needs to be a bit like mixed up timelines. Mm. You know the the kind of the running into life bit and and me evening up the score with the universe, but then the roots of why I'm doing that and then going back and pulling up an anecdote from from that five-year recovery journey because writing as a timeline is that there's there's a lot of harrowing stuff in there and I just thought if I'm starting the book with that and then coming through it, it might be a bit too hard for people to read so I need to show that there's light at the end of the tunnel take them back to a bit of darkness bring them back and forth but yeah you're you're right I mean we there was so much in, in my story to to, to get across here we didn't maybe necessarily cover some of the the lessons and the, the learnings yeah. from it but I want to maybe leave you with one little kind of last little story there were several and this involves my mum again there were several times over the years that you know my mum's friends would say to, to her it's like god it's like Mark's already living for the second time and she'd come to me and say that it's like when are you going to write a book and I'd be like I'm not ready I'm not ready um, I was too busy even in that school with the universe and I always had it in my own mind that this is why it's so important that you need to start with yourself first, self-care. You have to get yourself right before you can help anyone else. I love the anal analogy of um, putting the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on others. Yeah. So I was not ready, not ready, not ready. And it takes as long as it takes. Now I've gotten full of admiration for people that start charities, do causes, fundraising off the back of trauma. And they're doing really good things in their areas from a place of pain. But they're also sometimes doing it to heal themselves. And, and I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to put my healing onto something else. I needed to do it myself internally with the people around me. And that was going to take as long as it took. And for me, it took 30 years. And after I had that all over body experience when I was driving out of Wales I called my mum on the way home I think I was driving down the, the M1 or something like that and I said to her like I'm ready it's time I'm gonna do it and she was like son you know I've been waiting 20 years for this phone call and I know your time is right now and it's like geez I nearly to hear that from your mum I nearly crashed you know crashed the car off the motorway and then I got home and I had all these crazy ideas I was coming up with and I went to the pub with my mum and my sister and just making them feel secure that I'm not having a crazy midlife crisis. This is the right thing for me. I've left this company. I'm doing this for the right reasons. And it came up that why wasn't I always that interested in getting involved in charities that specifically don't with, deal with burn victims or... Yeah. Uh, disfigurement or whatever it may be and I said to her and I pointed over to an imaginary person in the corner of the pub and I said there's a person over there that's so that to the outside world looks perfect you know the Instagram cutty cooker perfect yeah they've followed all the signposts to happiness in life yet below their surface they're really suffering but what have they got to complain about and I was like, that's the person I want to I help. And that person exists 
everywhere across society. And I had I have got so many answers to that through my story because going right back to what I said at the beginning, no one around me was painting a really good, bright future. I had to go deep inside to create and find my own answers and do that. And I couldn't have done that with a credible support around me. So the mixture of, you know, characterizing and building up your resilience, but having that incredible support around you. And I want to share that so that people from any different background with any trauma, big T trauma, little T traumas, adversities that we face through life, you know, roadblocks, mountains to climb, whatever, can learn from my way of thinking. And that's that's why I'm doing this. Wow. So if someone wants to book you in for uh, a speech or for, well, for inspiring them, yeah. um, how can they get hold of you? Uh, the best way is to contact me on LinkedIn. And um, I am actually hopefully soon signing up with a speaking agency that I'll be talking to. But yeah, for now, LinkedIn is, I don't really use that much social media. I'm trying to keep my life that quiet, but LinkedIn is a really yeah. nice safe space for me to sort of test and communicate and um so yeah connect with me on linkedin and i'm always up for a, a chat as you can tell i love a chat and <laughs> yeah and i want to do yeah more podcasts and then get out there and uh yeah and do speaking and now that i've got me right you know and it's taken over 30 years from that solid foundation and from that solid platform i now want to create a ripple effect and help as many people as i can understand their own journeys and not to fear them and the future is bright Thank you, Mark. Yeah, as soon as the book is ready to launch, give us a shout. Love to have you back. And go Absolutely. Deeper. And thank you, thank you so much for having me on and yeah, giving me the you. platform. And it's been brilliant to talk to you both. Oh man, this is yeah. No, this is oh, yeah. No, this has been an experience for me. But yeah, and as I say, big love to your mum and your family. I'm now going to go and phone my mum. So yeah, um, it's, it's never too late. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. Anytime. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Feel free to reach out to Volker or David via our website, www.manupdown.com or podcast at manupdown.com with any feedback or to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Hear you again soon.